Oh, Lord, you know my insufficiency this morning to bring before your people your majesty. Would you open our hearts and minds so that we can see you today? In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, let me ask you, how many of you grew up going to church? You know, show of hands. Most people, most people in here grew up going to church. Um, you, we have a broad variety of, of backgrounds represented, represented. Are my girls saying they grew up going to church? Is that what we're laughing about over here? Okay, yes, they did. Um, um, maybe against their will sometimes, but they have. Um, uh, we have a broad variety of backgrounds, and uh, that's something that uh, we took on before we were even, many of us, most of us in here, before we were even able to think, maybe even to, able to verbalize things, we took on understanding church. And just like we know what a house is, like we know what a car is, we know what church is and we know what worship is. And those kind of things are like pre-conscious or, or a, a subconscious understandings that we have that we don't even have to, have to analyze. It's the substructure of our mind. We, we just know what they are. And it takes a lot even to get down to think about them if we're going to if at all question, if we're going to ask any questions and say, was well, that really what it is? You know, because we, we gain certain understandings early on, and we, and we just keep those through life. And, and some of you from a, a Catholic background, and then we have some of you in here, you've grown up thinking certain things. And some of you from a very low church Protestant background, like my own, you've grown up cer thinking certain things. And probably most of the time, except for those of you who, who have left something behind, uh, uh, most of the time, what you've thought about worship has just gone unquestioned, at least largely, the, the general framework that you're operating in. And one thing you may not have ever thought about, and I'll just ask you if you have right now, have you ever thought that the way you worship, and the way you've grown up worshiping, has formed you as a person? In other words, it's not just what you've done for God. It's not just what you've done because uh, this was a religious obligation or even because it was a good thing to do because God said to do it. But have you ever thought that the way you're living your life may be to some extent and perhaps a great extent because of your worship? And I want to say to you that that's one of the things that's going on. I've said this to you before. I hope you've thought it before, actually, because I did preach a sermon about this a few months ago. Uh, <laughs> maybe you don't remember that. But uh, uh, we, this is a, a follow-up on that, on that. We've been talking now about uh, the formation of the church, teaching and training the church. We've talked about why the Bible's important, why Christian theology is important, basic doctrines. I appreciated Brother Terry having us say the Nicene Creed today. And we've talked about understanding the gospel being important. These things are foundational for us, and worship is also foundational for us, informing us as, as people. And you might just stop and ask yourself, what is it that you were formed in? How was your heart formed in your early days of worship? I was talking to Olivia about this last night in bed, just the, just the way we came up in similar traditions, as many of you did. And uh, we were talking about the ways we were formed. And there were some good things about the way we were formed. For one thing, we learned to take the Bible very seriously and to think that the Bible was really important. We learned that assembling regularly and, and worshiping regularly is very important. I, I've been in, in discipleship groups with people before, and uh, one of the spiritual disciplines that we hold each other accountable to, this is for people not from my background, was to, to go to church on Sunday. And I've always laughed at that. We're like, what? <laughs> of course I go to church. I'm Church of Christ. <laughs> we don't miss church on Sunday. Um, that was my background. So, so uh, certain things were good, but then we also, 
uh, developed certain uh, bad understandings from the way we, were, we grew up. And, and both of us were, were thinking about it last night, just thinking we grew up thinking God was distant. We didn't have a sense of his presence in our worship assemblies, which I think is central to, to worship. We uh, thought God was picky and uh, difficult to please. And that was reflected in our worship. Of course, it's partially the teaching. It's partially the way we pray and the way we sing, the way we talk about things afterwards. You know, it's a whole package deal. But it forms us. It shapes us. And then that shaped me into who I was as a, as a teenager. And um, really, in some ways, I'm still recovering in my life from some of the things I learned. And worship was a part of that. I want to tell you that the way we worship, with our voices, with our minds, with our bodies, that is a part of our formation. It's why we take it very, very seriously here. My title for the sermon today may be a little bit off subject. I, I, I come up with these titles. Victoria badgers me to get posters ready. So I have to give her these titles early. And I don't always know exactly if it's going to fit. So it's a little bit off. I'm just teasing Victoria. She does a great job. Uh, um, I don't always know if it's going to exactly fit. But it, it, it's related to what we're talking about today. We're talking about how worship forms us. And specifically... Uh, I'm going to emphasize today how understanding the holiness of God is formative for us in, in worship. Uh, there's a scripture in the Old Testament. Actually, it shows up multiple times in one way or another, I believe. And, and, uh, it's a simple statement. Many of you will recognize it. God tells his people, you shall be holy. But he also gives a reason for it. Because I am holy. And he forever establishes that our life of holiness is related to who he is. And it's so important for us to understand in a world that's so human-centered, and now a church that many times is human-centered, that we always start with who God is, and then we live out of that. And our worship takes us into who God is. As we encounter the holy God in worship, we become holy ourselves. So there's one guy who has written on worship, and he distinguishes uh, three paradigms for worship. One is the paradigm of encounter. This is a more charismatic paradigm. Uh, one is the paradigm of formation. This is sometimes emphasized more in Reformed traditions. And then there's the paradigm of mission, which you see a lot of times in evangelical churches, and it bleeds over into what we've talked about here before, seeker-sensitive type services, where, where you, you put mission at the center of, of the, the service. So these different, different paradigms will end up emphasizing different things in, in church services. A charismatic tradition may emphasize, man, we are seeing God right now. The danger is that you can get carried away into experientialism that de-emphasizes other things. A, a formation approach to worship may emphasize uh, the hearing the word and thinking about the word and being formed by the word. But the danger there is you can get carried away into rationalism and overthinking things and, and, and getting centered on an intellectualism uh, that's misguided. But then, of course, the, the, the mission model can be very easily misguided as well because then we start to compromise. We start to say, let's do whatever we need to do to, to get people to come in and hear the gospel. Let's get them to sit there and they'll hear it. And you end up leaving out things that are important. And essentially, you end up actually sometimes uh, neglecting the encounter and the formation in, in that kind of model. My own understanding of this would be that uh, our, our focus on worship should be, first of all, above all of this, is just we bow down before the Lord of glory because he's worthy. And that, that's what we do. It, it is our duty and obligation to worship God. But as we're doing so, we encounter God, and we're formed by that encounter, 
And then that overflows into mission to the people. That, that, I think there's an order to it in, in, uh, in that way. Now, we want to get into the scriptures today and, and talk about how this encounter with the holy God will shape us. I'm going to take you to the Old Testament, to 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is when David is bringing the ark back to Israel. Now, if you remember, the ark had been captured by the Philistines years before. And uh, it, it had been a major blow to the Israelites. The ark was taken away. And they took it and they stuck it in the temple of uh, the god Dagon, however you say his name. Uh, and I love this story. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 6, I believe. 5 or 6, somewhere there. Uh, and and they, they take it in battle. Huge blow to Israel. They stick it in their, their temple to the, to the god Dagon, the, their, their idol. And... and uh, the next day they come in and they, they come into the temple and they find that Dagon has fallen flat on his face <laughs> in the temple. They're like, what happened here? So they go in, they, they pick their idol up, they set him back up, they leave him, leave him for another day. They come back. The next day they walk in, Dagon has fallen flat on his face again and his arms and his head have fallen off. <laughs> and they're like, something's wrong here. <laughs> and we're, you see, their idea was, let's just mix the gods together. Let's get all the help we can get, you know. And they didn't know, no, there's one God. And this God is the judge of all the others. <laughs> to the extent that they are real, this God stands above them and, and judges them. So the Philistines end up sending, they, they, they attach the ark to some oxen or something. They, they ship it off back to Israel <laughs> to, to get it out of their land. Um, and uh, uh, you recognize this ark that means God is present. It was the center, the central image of, uh, for God's presence. It was, if you want to call it, in a sense, sacramental. God showed up there. He said his presence comes with that ark. And it was, it was a major, major holy uh, item, holy vessel. So they, they're, they're, but the thing is, they send it back, and they stick it in the house of Abinadab, and Saul, King Saul, I think this says something about Saul, he never brings it back to Israel. He never brings it back to the capital. He just leaves it out there on the outskirts. Well, when David comes into power, he says, we're bringing it back. And David's heart for God and his desire for the presence of God says, we need to bring this back. You read about there in verse 2. They went down to uh, Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark on, on a new cart. That's going to be significant here in just a minute. And uh, they brought it uh, out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets, whatever that is. Anybody still play a castanet? Scott and Carly? Was there such a thing as a castanet? I don't know where you guys are. Oh, it is? Okay. Okay, you, you know. Good, good. All right, I, I've never heard of one. Symbols, they did all the instruments out, and they're, they're uh, celebrating, okay? Then look at what happens here. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Now, it looks like Uzzah just says, whoa. It's going to fall. Let me save it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, this is one of the texts from my background, and I was raised in a legalistic background, that was one of our, our texts of terror. You know, we went to this 
to scare people. This was to say, you better do what God says. Because you might be the next Uzzah. It could be you. And it's one of these things where it's, it's a God's going to get you kind of verse. And you better, you better be very careful or, or God might strike out against you like he did against Uzzah. Do you know how sometimes people compare... Uh, I've seen people do this. Uh, compare Jesus to Santa Claus or God to Santa Claus and say God is better than Santa Claus because you have some of these things about Santa Claus like the creepy song where he's, he sees you when you're sleeping he knows when you're awake, right? You know, you're like, oh, Santa Claus, you know, that, he's, he's watching out for how good or bad you are and all that kind of thing. But, th- see, we have to avoid a bad view of God because this, th- that understanding that I grew up with God is much worse than Santa Claus, even in the creepy songs. I mean, imagine if we sang, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus might kill you when you least expect it, right? That would be freaky, right? And that's what I grew up th- hearing about God. And by well-meaning people, I don't mean to condemn them, but I, I, this is the story, one of the main stories where we, we, we said these things about God. And, and it was really a, a, a bad view of God. I want to show you why the way we've understood that text, this is not about God randomly losing his temper and striking out an innocent guy who was just trying to help. There's a lot more going on here than that in this text, and it tells us something about worship. But to appreciate what it is, we need to uh, understand a little bit about what the Ark of the Covenant was. So there's a, here's a, a remake of, of the Ark of the Covenant. You may not be able to see it that well. Um, uh, you see that, I don't know if you can tell or not, but there are little rings on, on the side. They, they stuck the poles through there, and they would carry it. They weren't supposed to touch it. The Ark was sacred. You did not touch it. It communicated something about the power of God, and people needed to know that. You stayed away from it. You, they made it. It was sanctified and set apart, and you did not touch the ark. It was placed in the most holy place when they came to the tabernacle or temple, and the priest only went in there one, one time a year. This was to say, God is other than you. You do not know God. <laughs> In one sense, we do, but we don't ever come to some kind of exhaustive knowledge of God. He is so far beyond and above us. Do you know why the Israelites could not make an image of God? One of the first things God tells them to do is never try to make an image of me. Because we will inevitably end up taking away from the great majesty of God by trying to present some image of him. We cannot come close to his greatness his glory, his grandness. So we don't make images of God. If you were there this morning, you heard uh, a man talking about uh, idolatry in India and the kind of things they make to represent the gods or the great God as they, as they view him or them. And you see the, the foolishness, really, uh, that's attached to all of that. And God says, don't do that. Don't, don't even try. You, you will mess it up. We don't have an image of God. He is beyond us. And what they have instead is this ark, and that's what's called the mercy seat. You read about the mercy seat? Right there, that's called the mercy seat, where these cherubim, these mighty angelic beings, bow down, they put their wings forward, and their heads go down, probably because they're not supposed to look up at the glorious Lord. 
And so these mighty angel, angelic beings are there with their heads down. This is viewed as the seat of God. The, I love it. It's called the mercy seat because that's our God. But they are representing the, the greatness of God right there. That's what the ark represented. There's another picture for you. It gets a little closer to the heads where you can see them. The heads bowed down and, and making a space for, for God. Representing his presence. Of course, the, the heaven of the heavens cannot contain him. But it's making a, a space for him. And so we see what happens with Uzzah. This is not about God randomly targeting someone for an innocent mistake. This is about God protecting his great and holy name for the sake of the people who are being formed to think something about him that's going to be reflected in them as a people and then go out the intention for God all along for this message about him to go into the whole world for everybody to know it. And God is protecting his name when he says, you keep the representation of my presence holy. You keep it separate. And some people will say, but yeah, but he was just trying to help. Why did he get struck down? He was just trying to help. Well, let me say a few things about that. Number one, um, I think the mistake may have already been in the way the people in charge, as of maybe being one of them, he was a Levite, were viewing this ark. They had changed the way to transport it. And they had put it on a cart. And I can't help but wonder if this was a move away from reverence already. You know, they were supposed to carry it like on their shoulders, transporting a king or a queen on these poles, not touching it. Instead, they say, let's stick it on this ark. I mean, <laughs> don't stick it on the ark. Stick it on this cart and uh, attach it to oxen and let them pull it on the rough road. It seems like it may be a step away from reverence already, the way they're, they're moving and, and making this change. God had told them how to carry it, and, and they weren't doing that. And, and you can see their reasoning, right? This is much more convenient. Others is like, I don't want to be the one carrying it. Do you want to be the one carrying it? This is a lot faster. It was, that was years ago God said, you know, put it on the poles. We don't need to do that. Let's just make it convenient. Let's make it uh, easier for everybody. Maybe this will be more exciting as we uh, are moving around and, and are, are moving faster and everything. You see, we dare not trade reverence for convenience in our worship or reverence for excitement in our worship. And that may have been the first mistake that's, that's been made here. The, the second thing I would say about Uzzah is that I'm not convinced at all that Uzzah was just completely innocent in this. He was a Levite. He should have known about sacred things. That would have been his training to know about this. And our reflexes do tell us about what's in our hearts, right? We, we act on the moment a lot of times, but what's in us many times is coming out in those moments. It's not that we just suddenly... Messed up, like, oh, man, I totally forgot. I guess that's possible sometimes. But a lot of times our reflexes are just reflecting the way we have trained our hearts. For example, if I were to suddenly throw a snake out there into the aisles, I would know what your reflexes would tell you to do. We would see it immediately because you know what a snake is. And you know to jump back. It's a reflex, but it's a trained reflex. You have learned that. Well, why had Uzzah not learned that you don't ever touch the ark? Perhaps in private, he had been touching it a lot. I wouldn't be surprised at all if that were the case. Perhaps there was a culture developed privately with, with, with the leaders of, of God's people that was saying, yeah, it's not that big a deal. We don't need to worry about touching the ark. That's kind of outdated. And then it happens publicly, and God says, no. 
I'm not going to let that be the example for the people to see, that you can somehow become that casual with my holy presence. So, so for me, I don't, I don't think, I don't assume the great innocence of Uzzah in all of this. Uh, his reflexes were to touch the ark instead of to jump away from the ark. And that may say more about Uzzah than we've realized. Uh, the third thing I would say is that uh, regardless of all that speculation, the innocence of Uzzah is not as important as the holiness of God. And we can trust that God will do well by Uzzah in eternity. And whatever needs to be made right, God's going to make it right. But Uzzah's innocence is not as important as the holiness of God. And that's a hard thing sometimes for us to say in a, in a culture and in a church that's been so indoctrinated with a, a human-centered idea, human-centered religion. Everything runs through us. Everything functions on, on what the human's desires and pleasures are. And we, we are always pleasing the customer in our society. We've learned that that's the way the world works. And we think, yeah, God shouldn't make such a big deal about his holiness. Wrong. God is God. And if we think that his holiness is not a big deal, and it's not as important as human innocence, that just shows how far away we have gotten from the understanding of who the living and true God is. His love is incredible. He pours it out upon us. He invites us into relationship with him. None of that changes. But he invites us to come knowing who he is. And that shapes our lives. Yeah, I, have a, I have a book in my office. It's one of those that I've been meaning to read and just haven't gotten to it, but I know the basic idea of what it's saying. The title is called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, and it's, a, it's an analysis, I think a historical analysis of what's happened to the church in, in contemporary times where therapy has triumphed. It's triumphed over Christian theology. And so so many messages are human-centered. So many churches are human-centered. Our world is human-centered, and we come to get a message that will help us be a little bit better. As I talked about a few weeks ago, the, the religion of young people now has been identified as moralistic, therapeutic deism. This, this, this do some good things, get, your help, get yourself helped, and, and God is distant. And we have to maintain, in light of the scriptural revelation that is so clear, that our religion is not about us. And we are not coming for therapy. We are coming for help. <laughs> but it's not therapy. It's not putting us in the center and saying, God, meet my needs how I want them to be met. We are coming and say, God, you are God, and I bow down before you. In this case, for us, uh, securing the ark was more important than respecting the presence of God. And I, I think, in a way, that's what human-centered religion is. We need to do it in a way that, that helps us secure things. And we may think we're doing it for God, even. Get people into church. How do we secure them? How do we make them stay? How do we make them like it? How do we make them happy? How do we meet their needs? Oh, they weren't getting their needs met. They're going to go somewhere else. And what we need to do is step back from that and say, how do we bow down before the Lord of glory? How do we recognize that he is God and that we are not? 
And let that reality infuse everything else. In this case, celebration, which is an entirely appropriate thing, and I'm going to come to that in a moment, but it led to a, casual, a casualness about God's presence that was inappropriate. It led to an over-familiarity with the only wise God. It led to a lack of appreciation for what it means to worship the Holy One of Israel. And things go astray when that happens. And suddenly they were reminded of whose presence they were in. There's a danger in our worship today, a very American danger, where we've lost a sense of respect for authority, we've lost a sense of an understanding of the sacred, we've lost a sense of what it means to be in the presence of spiritual realities at all. We've talked about these kind of things before here. There's a danger in this kind of setting that we gather for worship unaware of whose presence we are in. And then we are malformed as Christians. You read the scriptures and you see, you see Job. Remember the story of Job who has all this bad stuff happen to him? And what he wants throughout the, the text of Job is he keeps asking, I wish I could just have a case, make my case to God. I wish I could have an audience with God. Finally, he gets what he's asking for. And guess what? God doesn't even give him an answer. And our American sensibilities rebel against that. And we say, no, God, you owe him an answer. But Job, being in the presence of God, when God shows up and doesn't give him an answer, Job says, whoop. I mean, that's literally what I put my hand over my mouth. I have spoken about things I do not know. You read about Isaiah in, in, in the Old Testament where he encounters the presence of God. The angels are flying around covering their eyes, covering their feet, not looking at the Holy One. And Isaiah is saying, whoa, whoa, it's me. For I've seen the king of kings. I've come into his presence. I'm in trouble. And that's what you find in the Old Testament. And multiple times people are encountering God and they're like, what? I'm not dead. <laughs> Am I going to die? Because they know the presence of God is something you don't trifle with. You don't walk casually into it and say, oh yeah, here you go, God. I'm here. We're buddies. You know God, you love God, but you understand who he is. You fast forward to the book of Revelations, and you've got these mighty creatures, weird-looking creatures, powerful creatures, who are bowing down before God. You've got the angels falling down before God. You've got the elders, these 24 elders, falling down, throwing their crowns, taking the crowns off their heads and throwing them at the throne. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they're saying it all the time, over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. And then you fast forward to the contemporary American church. And we grab our cup of coffee, and we sidle in and sit down and say, show me a good time. Make me like it. And we've lost a sense of the holiness of God in our worship assemblies. Many times. I'm not, not being accusing towards you. Maybe you have it very strongly. But many times we have lost that sense of holiness. 
a sense of reverent awe that should accompany our worship of God. I love the, the song, Holy, 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 that old song. Um, cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, who was and art and evermore shall be. That, that's a sense of worship. The angels get it. Well, notice, I want you to notice what David does here. We're, we're going to move more quickly with some of this. David's angry because of what happens. He doesn't think it should have happened. And then he's afraid of the Lord. And so he's not willing to take the ark into the city of David, take it to Jerusalem. Um, he takes it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and he leaves it there. Obed-Edom's like, what? <laughs> I mean, the king said keep it, so okay, I'll keep it. But then it turns out Obed-Edom gets blessed by the Lord because of his presence. And David sees this. Now, I just want to notice before, before I say that, that, that David's fear leads to an extreme action. He should have been, become aware of the importance of reverence, of all before God. But instead, what David does is he gets mad and he gets afraid. And he says, fine, leave the ark. And he starts thinking bad things about God. And he totally misunderstands. God's not a God who's looking to strike people down. He's not a God who's waiting to break out against people, even for disobedience, much less for innocent mistakes. This is not who God is. I mean, our God is revealed in Jesus. For that matter, Jesus Christ died for us. But David misunderstands in light of this uh, occasion where, where God's power is shown and, and his judgment is shown upon us. And so he assumes that there's something bad about this. He's mad at God. He says, get rid of the ark. Well, turns out, if you send God's presence to somebody who's welcoming him and, and honoring him, God starts to bless that person. And David hears about it, and he says, okay, well, um, the Lord is blessing. That's verse 12 there. And uh, he went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And then notice what they're doing. When those who bore the ark of God, had gone six steps. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. It looks like he's restored some reverence to the ceremony. They're carrying it now on their shoulders. In fact, 1 Chronicles 15 gives us more information here on the same story. Then David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of God. And then he says to them, consecrate yourselves. Get ready for this. Approach it with reverence so that you may bring up the ark of God because you did not carry it the first time the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. You see what had happened? They had approached it with casualness. They had disregarded God's, God's commands. And in so doing, they had left themselves vulnerable to irreverence, to a lack of respect for the great and holy God. And now David has restored reverence to this ceremony and he said, we will be reverent as we bring this ark up. But notice this now. This is going to be our, our last portion of this talk. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Please notice that 
an appropriate reverence did not eliminate joy. <laughs> you see, this is what we can't, we can't misunderstand. The, uh, we can't mistake quietness or a, a solemnness for reverence. Reverence is when God is there and we are attentive to him. But that is also a kind of reverence that leads to joyful celebration. And now, if anything, David's more excited. He, he's more joyful. He is celebrating the Lord, but he's doing it with reverence. There's awe. There's, there's majesty. There's a respect for the presence of the Lord. But with that respect, there is joyful celebration. And you see, these things have to be held in tension in worship. We cannot go overboard on either side. David's doing things that show he is just thrilled. He's thrilled to be close to God. The formality, the carefulness, the thoughtfulness, they didn't eliminate joy. And neither should they for us. Uh, Olivia went to church with somebody years ago, uh, an old lady who told her once that she thought church services should be like a funeral. And uh, that's interesting. That's what some people's idea of church is. It should be like a funeral. But I, I think that one of the main problems with that is that Jesus isn't dead. <laughs> and God is not dead. <laughs> so our worship is always going to be an occasion for joy. With appropriate reverence. With appropriate uh, attention to human emotion. As, as sadness comes up, we deal with it. We don't deny it. But we're joyful because our God is alive and he's ruling and reigning and he's present with us. And when you realize that God is present to bless, see, that's what David had to realize. This scary God who can seem scary, this powerful God, the one whom none can contain, when you realize that God comes close to bless people, that's when you say, let's celebrate, let's rejoice. And I don't have all the answers for what this should look like. You know, I don't think every expression is appropriate to every setting. I don't think we should be like, well, David danced like crazy, so I'm going to dance like crazy, and I don't care what anybody says. I don't think that's loving. The Apostle Paul talks about some of that in 1 Corinthians 14. When, when there's a lot of spiritual gifts and expressions going around, he said, no, pay attention to your brothers and sisters. And make sure what's happening is orderly in a way that it edifies people. So there's got to be a balance to this. But I also think probably... That if we're really in the presence of God and the joy of the Lord is present with us, probably it's going to stretch us some. Probably there's going to be some, some people who express themselves differently than others. Um, I'm going to say this very carefully. My offspring, I don't want anyone to notice what I'm saying. Uh, uh, my offspring gives this uh, challenge to, to us sometimes um, with great expression. Um, I'm saying this very uh, subtly so that someone doesn't pick up on it, but you know what I'm saying. Um, th this great, joyful expression that we love, but it goes beyond us. <laughs> and sometimes we wonder, uh, is that okay? Uh, it will probably stretch us sometimes when we make room for people to be in the presence of God and to be joyful there. But we don't become casual just because we're joyful. We don't become over-familiar. Theologians talk about these two ideas about God, his eminence and his transcendence. That is to say, he's incredibly close. He's there, in a sense, at the ark. But he's also so far above us, we can never say we've figured him out. Now we've got it. The best we can do is like get the arrow pointing the right direction and say, okay, there's God. 
billions of miles of knowledge that way. But we're moving towards that God who's been revealed to us in Christ. And in light of that, we have joy and reverence, joyful reverence, reverent joy in this form. Thomas Aquinas was one of the smartest men who's ever lived, probably. One of the smartest theologians in Christian, Christian history. And towards the end of his life, he had an experience of God. Written bukus of stuff that shaped the world, really. He had an experience of God towards the end of his life. And he came out of that experience, and he said, All my writing is straw. And some of Thomas' critics came along and said, You see, oh, yeah, it's just straw. <laughs> Don't worry about it. But I, I, at least the way it was taught to me, that's not what, that's not what Thomas meant. What he meant was, in comparison to getting in touch with the actual presence of God, to experiencing him, all I've written could just be burned up in a second. See, when we realize that that's who we're dealing with, we understand that our first obligation is to bow down before him. It's not to enjoy ourselves. <laughs> It's not to keep people happy, although worship will become a great joy to us as we learn it. Our first duty that becomes our great joy is to bow down before this Lord of glory, this Lord of heaven and earth, to be reverent in awe before him. And we are formed then as people who know the holy God. And I want to invite you today as we come to the table to not take it for granted whose presence you're in? Who is the one who has invited you to touch and to taste him? I want you to pay attention, if you would, to the words of the song we're going to have playing in the Lord's Supper where we consider the holiness of God together. Would the praise team come on up, please?